Muetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namuetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namuetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Damang Sangam Namasami So here we are, the last evening of the retreat. It's amazing how quickly it comes around. Actually, for some of you, it might have felt like an eternity since you arrived. <laughs> Time's a funny thing, isn't it? Even within the space of a retreat, even within the space of one sit, we can feel like it's, you know, one, one minute is an eternity and the next is... And then suddenly the session's over. It's really interesting, time, concept of time. It's very um, elastic. It's very, it's not real. In a sense, it's not real. It's a concept, it's a perception. Um, so if, if the retreat's taken a very, very long time or whether it's gone very quickly for you, it's just interesting to notice that, to see how it is for you. We've been talking quite a bit today in different groups about sort of um, the sense of what's good meditation and what's bad meditation, and, and essentially that there's no such thing. It's really hard to fully realize this. I know myself, you know, my sense of a good meditation is lovely and peaceful, and I'm, I'm very alert and attentive, but there's not much going on, but what is going on is quite pleasant, something like that. <laughs> that sort of feels like good meditation, bad meditation, something like lots of pain or confusion or, or a mind that's, you know, really restless, distracted. But of course, it really isn't like that. And, and more and more we can realize it's it's not the experiences themselves that are good, bad or otherwise, you know. It's the quality of mindfulness that's really key. And it's interesting, I've got a very good friend who, um, I don't think she's had a single peaceful moment in her practice, a meditation practice, is unrelenting difficulty, a mind that doesn't really settle, that's very distracted, and, and she's never had the experience of a quiet mind, of a silent mind, you know, peace, peace, tranquility, those, those things are not in her, in her experience. But she's one of the best meditators that I know because she just does it. She's she's just, you know, has this kind of discipline that she keeps going, even though it's so difficult. And there are physical issues too, and she just she just bears with and and you know, slowly but surely has come to realise herself the benefit of the practice, not to judge the practice. Other people, and I'm, I was a bit like this myself, I, I, I found it very peaceful when I started sitting. <clears throat> My mind focuses very easily. Peace, you know, peaceful. And I, and I spent years, quite honestly, cultivating nothing much, you know, just, just being very peaceful. 
and it can become a real comfort zone, you know, a bit of a dead end. And it, it's really hard to see that sometimes. It's really hard to realize that there's not much wisdom there. There's not much opportunity for insight because we get addicted to comfort, don't we? And we can do that, you know, as much with meditation practice as we do with anything else. The Buddha said, you know, there are, there are different types of persons, different qualities. We, we have a bit like the elements, you know, every, every material thing is composed of the four elements, but to different degrees. So water is predominantly water element, the air is predominantly air element, so forth. The other elements are there, but they're just very much less apparent. Well, there are these different kinds of persons with a predominance of different traits. And, and basically, you can say there are three types of persons. And then there's whole mixtures. But, but these three types, there's the greedy types, the craving types... You know, the, I, I mean, I, I put myself in this category most of the time, <coughs> the sort of person who's motivated by desire, who, who likes, you know, loves easily, enjoys things, loves to eat, loves to sleep, uh, enjoys physical pleasure, <coughs> is motivated by that. And such people often, when, when they start meditating, they'll experience peace and bliss, because that's the sort of mind they have. And then you can get addicted to that. And it's dangerous, actually. It's, it's quite a trap. And sometimes the mind can be so very obstinate and stubborn around this. We can feel, well, no, this is, this is how to practice. This is the right practice. There are stories of, of there's one particular monk in Thailand who was, uh, spent most of his life as a monk dwelling in states of peacefulness bliss, tranquility, and, and rigidly adhering to this and getting absolutely nowhere. And he didn't realize for a very, very long time until he met the right teacher who said, you've got to stop doing that. Come back to the body. Come back to the, the physical experience. You know, the material form which, which will enable us to develop insight because it's not blissful there. <clears throat> it's not peaceful we're going to be able to look deeper and find the places where there is suffering. And in that way, of course, we can begin to develop insight, wisdom, and to let go of our suffering or to let it be, to learn from it. It opens the doors for us. So the greed types, I mean, you can tell a greed type that, that there's all these descriptions of what this sort of person is like in the Abhidhamma. And it's kind of fun, actually, to read about the different types of persons. The greed type is very usually quite presentable, you know, quite well dressed, quite beautiful often, you know, quite a, um, appealing to look at. And they like things to be tidy around them and they when they eat they'll scrape the they'll scrape the plate clean and make a nice presentation at the end. And they'll often save the nicest food till last. Save the nicest morsel and have it at the end and really relish it, you know. <laughs> and they like to have nice things around them. You know, they appreciate beauty, you know, nice pictures, nice furnishings, you know. <clears throat> it, it means something to a greed type. Make the world a beautiful place. And they tend to think positively about most things, not, not recognize 
the negative aspects because we screen so much of our experience, don't we? We're seeing a fraction of what is. And the greed type will look at the bright side. So we'll go into a room and look at the beautiful picture over there of Ajahn Samedo. Beautiful. And, and that picture of the beautiful calligraphy. Wonderful. Won't notice if the paint's peeling or <laughs> if the window frames need mending. That wouldn't occur to a greed type. You're not interested in that sort of thing. It's the Buddha pictures and the be- you know beauty. So it's really interesting to see how you know we we we're, we're a certain type and we create our world accordingly. And it's really good to recognise these different types because we can then see outside the box. You know, we can start to imagine even or even open our hearts to other possibilities like the aversion type that's the second type averse types people who generally see the dark side they're going to see the problems you know which is wonderful really because then they somehow they can get fixed but seeing what's wrong you know people who generally don't particularly enjoy the nice things in life when it comes to eating, they'll eat very hastily. You know, just get it out the way, get it finished, get it over with, move on to the next thing. Even the posture and the gait of the different types is very distinctive. The aversion type will move fast. You know, it's it's a, it's just getting from A to B. <clears throat> the the greed type will have a very nice posture, <laughs> move in a graceful way. The aversive type is more scruffy and not so interested in appearances. The Buddha said there's a lot more wisdom in aversion than in desire, which is quite interesting. There's a lot more seeing when we see with the eyes of, you could say, a critical eye, you could say a a discerning eye, a discerning gaze, something to consider. And the third type of person is the confused, the ignorant type. Actually, I think I'm all three, really. (laughs) What do you reckon you are? The confused type, the sort of person who doesn't really quite know what they're doing. And and they tend to be quite quite messy, and they might have bits of food sort of (laughs) front. (laughs) And they get lost, you know, they forget what they're doing and sort of wander about, and, and generally confused, you know, <clears throat> lose things, make messes, and don't notice them. Uh, put their shoes in one entrance and go out the other. <laughs> <laughs> they don't just leave a messy plate, they forget to take it to the washing up area, they just leave it on the table, mess all around. And I mean, we can we can think of people and we can figure out what people are, you know, and we can see for ourselves what traits we have, and it is kind of fun. But we're we're you know we we have a mixture of all of these things. But the <coughs> the the key to it really, the point of learning about this for me is to have a sense of how to proceed, you know, how to free the heart. And it's different, you know, a slightly perhaps different approach for different types of people. For a person who's confused, an ignorance type of person, uh, more deluded, more more prone to confusion, it's good to take in teachings, you know, to really 
uh, allow <clears throat> time to listen to the Dharma and to read and to consider the teachings again and again, you know, to keep coming back to them. So there can be a kind of a, a straightening of view, disentangling that confusion. And a simple practice, so a meditation practice that is quite simple. Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, very good. Something that concentrates the mind, where you don't have to make any big decisions about what you're doing. It's wonderful the Buddha gave so many different techniques we can utilize in different ways, but actually we can get sort of overloaded with possibilities sometimes. And then we, we can move into the realm of doubt, this hindrance of doubt, which is the biggest hindrance for the confusion type, for the ignorance type. You know, and we can start wondering whether we're doing it right or whether we should do this or should I do that. And we end up chopping and changing and not really focusing at all on our practice. So to keep it very simple and just have one method and just stay with it. Because, you know, it doesn't matter what technique we use. It really doesn't matter. It's the mindfulness that counts. And so whether we use the same technique for the whole life or we are diverse in our choices, it doesn't matter. It's whatever works for us. So if we're prone to confusion and questioning and doubt about how to meditate, just choose one object and stay with it. You can't go wrong. For the uh, aversive type, what will happen when we sit and meditate is we'll tend to really notice the negative thoughts, the, the painful emotions, and they can really, you know, overtake and overwhelm us sometimes. And so what's actually needed is a conscious bringing to mind of metta, loving kindness, like we did in the afternoon session. You see, there's nothing wrong with having negative thoughts. There's nothing wrong with dwelling even on unwholesome energies, so long as we know what we're doing. Know what we're doing, then we're not that. We're observing that. But we can bring in a balancing energy, which is metta. And really, you know, we're all capable of developing this. Like I was saying earlier, we can develop it through thinking about it. We can develop it through feeling it in the body. And we can develop it through imagery, bringing to mind that which we love, those people who we love, instant love in the heart. So we can use all three and really make much of this. And the more we have a negative, we say negative, angry or hateful thoughts and feelings, <coughs> aversion, irritation, dislike, resentment, the more we have these kind of uh, feelings and thoughts, the more we can appreciate the value of metta and, and let, it, let it be a practice for us. And like I was saying earlier, it's really helpful, I think, to start every session with a, a burst of metta, with a, a mind of metta, you know, to give us, a, give us the ground, give us the, um, the kind of uh, <coughs> tone, the kind of mode of being that will enable us to practice with a happy heart, whatever's going on. And the, the greed types, hmm, 
Well, the Buddha said, you know, people people who are greed types need to uh, try and develop a little bit of asceticism, bring in a little bit of renunciation. And it's interesting because in monastic life, there's a, there's a wonderful tome, which many of you have heard of, I'm sure, called the Visuddhimagga, Path of Purification. And it uh, <clears throat> gives a lot of guidance uh, for practice. And in the Visuddhimagga, it talks about these different personality types and how to train them in monasteries. So the aversion type, you give the best, the best accommodation to them, best food, best robes, treat them kindly so they can really relax and enjoy some comfort, which they won't enjoy. They won't, they won't like it. <laughs> They'll find fault with it, you know. They'll see the, the dark side of that. But, it, but it's a balancing again. Um, what, 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 you can guess what happens for the greed types, can't you? <laughs> what do you do for them? If you're training greed types, um, give them the shoddy accommodation with the worst view, you know, <laughs> the worst food, take away the sweets, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and give them the worst robes of the coarsest cloth. This is how it goes. Because they'll enjoy it. <laughs> they'll make the most of it. They'll they'll see the bright side even in that. Um, but it helps to balance things out. So again, if you if you see in yourself the the greed type, or you 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 see there are qualities there of of real uh, craving and desiring and relishing the pleasant, indulging, then we can we can pull back a little bit and and try and actually like I was saying yesterday, try and give up some things let go of some habits and, and some treats and see what happens. <clears throat> because for a greed type, it, it's working with desire a lot of the time and just feeling the, the, the yearning, the longing, the wanting and being willing to stay with that and see how it changes. For all the different qualities, for all the different experiences we have, in the knowing of them is the transformation. And it's amazing how things turn around, isn't it? It's like boredom. We, we come on retreat and, you know, there is definitely a, a reduction of sensory input on a retreat, isn't there? And people can often feel bored, you know. It can be difficult. That's a difficult one to deal with because it's nothing much. Nothing much. It's tedious. And that's where the time is really very slow to pass. You start even longing for a pain in the knee or something interesting, you know. <laughs> Some trauma to come up, you know. <laughs> Just for the entertainment value. Yeah. Nothing happening. Nothing happening. And of course, as a monastic, you know, and other people who've been monastic will know, you know, this is a, this is a big part of monastic life. <clears throat> nothing happening sitting in a kuti day after day in the winter. You know, there's nothing even in nature much to look at. And then you've just got to, you know, you're just watching your own mind, your own heart. But to me it's very beautiful that, that what, I know, what I've noticed over years is if, if I'm willing to stay with that, nothing, nothing happening feeling, very empty, very dry, very dull, what happens? It transforms. And as you've perhaps experienced on this retreat, suddenly, you know, or, or gradually, um, the most simple 
ordinary things become that little bit more interesting. It becomes that much more fascinating to, to drink a cup of tea without reading a book or watching TV at the same time, just to drink a cup of tea. How wonderful. Just to have our meal without anything else going on and really focus on the eating. And so the, the ordinary becomes extraordinary in a sense. Boredom's worth sitting through. It's worth being with. And anything else, anything else, it's, it's, there's a turnaround that happens, isn't there? So the averse type <clears throat> can begin to really feel positivity within as we face the dark, you know, the, the anger, the, the resentment, the irritability, the don't like, <clears throat> which is, you know, it's the whole spectrum, isn't it? From a mild disdain to absolute outright hatred, you know, we've got the whole spectrum. And as we, as we face these things and we're willing to, <clears throat> to be with them and bring in a balancing metta energy, we see how these things, these things will, will transform in front of our gaze. It's really quite amazing. And it's right here, isn't it? It's, it's within us. It's the felt sense that changes inexorably, sometimes very suddenly. Things will just give. Sometimes it's more of a slow slow, almost imperceptible change that happens. <clears throat> and the same with the greed types, the desire, <clears throat> that, that lack, that, that empty feeling of something missing, you know, it's like the, 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 the half full cup, the cup half full. Is it half full or is it half empty? And we can focus all our attention on the fact that it's half empty and suffer. Well, suddenly it can flip around for us and we realize, oh, it's half full. Wow. And it's a lovely feeling of everything's fine. I've got exactly what I need. <clears throat> fulfillment. Sense of fulfillment that comes through facing the emptiness. One of the sisters called the black hole, you know. That's the feeling of unmet desire, like a black hole. And so willingly, willingly to be with all of this experience. <clears throat> this is our, our great opportunity. Now I want to say a few words about um, a sort of, um, how to say, taking our practice back into the world. <clears throat> what, what after the retreat, what's next? What's next after the retreat? Because I know for many of you, it's your first retreat. And many people have been practicing, but maybe a lot of you not for, not for terribly long. And some people have been practicing for a very long time. But for those who are, who are developing a practice, um, maybe just a few words. <clears throat> because tomorrow we're all going away. And uh, I can, you know, there's a, a really strong encouragement for people to continue a daily practice. But it's very interesting how how the mind works um, when we try and introduce something new or something, um, say, yeah, a change in our lifestyle, a change in our habits. Uh, the mind's very interesting. I find if I try and imp introduce something new, there'll often be a resistance to that. 
The Buddha said it's a bit like training a horse, this practice. He gave this lovely analogy of, uh, <clears throat> you know, first you put the bit into the horse's mouth and it, of course it doesn't like it. It's going to try and spit it out. <clears throat> and, you, and so you leave it for a while and you, you just take in and out the bit and you, you let the horse get used to that before you take the next step and you introduce the bridle. Put the bridle on, the horse will rebel, it won't like it. And so you, you, you keep working with that for a while and just let it get used to it before you put the saddle on. And then finally you get onto the horse, you, you start riding the horse. Well, that's going to produce a lot of resistance in the animal. What are you doing on my back? Get off. You know, the horse will try and get away from you, gallop or, or buck you off. But, you know, with persistence and patience, you can end up riding the horse and the horse gets used to it and actually you know it doesn't it's no longer a problem after a certain point seemingly the horse is quite comfortable to be treated in this way used in this way well fortunately with our meditation practice it, we're not imposing anything that we don't really want we're not we're not um, imprisoning ourselves in any way or mistreating ourselves we're actually doing ourselves a favor which really helps. But even so, we, we want to bring in um, a meditation practice into our lives and we can, we can probably expect a certain amount of resistance. And it's difficult because there's so many other things that we can be doing. And this is actually not doing, isn't it? It's, it's stopping. And so it's very easy to think of all sorts of reasons why we can't meditate I haven't got time, and they're valid reasons, they're great reasons. So this is tricky. There's a lovely sutta where the Buddha was um, talking to an accountant. Um, I can't remember his name, Ganaka, something like that. Anyway, he's an accountant, and as, uh, I often get the impression that whenever the Buddha spoke to people, he would always find out about them first, you know. And so the, the, the sense in this sutra is there was a long conversation about accounting, how you train accountants. And he was called Ganaka Mughalana, actually. And he, he, he was telling the Buddha all about, well, you know, it's a very gradual training <clears throat> for accountants. You know, first you start with addition, mental arithmetic, and then you move on to, you know, multiplication, whatever, division, calculus. I don't know what they had in those days but you know complex work and and you and you slowly build up and it's a very gradual process and the buddha said to him yes in the same way the training of a of a of a meditator of a contemplative of a mindfulness practitioner is a very gradual process and then he outlined the the training and it's a really worthwhile sutta to to take in how do we train how do we train the heart, the mind? And the first thing he talked about was the precepts, the, the virtue. So to train in, in wholesome action and speech. <clears throat> that was the first, the very first thing. And gradually, you know, introducing each precept and, and aligning oneself with those ways of behaving or not behaving and taking them all on board you know and for us it's i don't know about you but when i when i first uh, learned about the five precepts i 
I was really happy with the first four. I thought they were great. I struggled a bit with the third one, you know, being honest, being really honest. Realised I wasn't, you know, I used to exaggerate a lot and sort of almost sort of make things up. And so to, to sharpen that and to work with that. But it felt right to try and be more honest and sincere, not to lie. It felt good. And the, all of the presets, but the drink one, the one around alcohol, I didn't actually agree with it to start with. I thought, no, that's not necessary. It's not necessary. Um, I, I drink occasionally. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to carry on. And I did, you know, for years. <coughs> and actually, I only stopped drinking when, I, when it became very obvious to me that I couldn't focus for a couple of days after I'd had a drink. I just couldn't concentrate very well. And at some point there was a tipping point and it was clear that, you know, it's one or the other. I want to be able to meditate. I don't really care much anymore for, for alcohol. And so it was a very natural thing for me to drop it. But I, I, I do notice that many people <laughs> feel that it's okay to have the odd drink. Of course there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it, it really doesn't help our mindfulness, for sure. And yet, you know, maybe for many of us, it's a gradual movement in this direction. It's not easy because of our culture, because of our cultural conditioning. For many of us, it's not easy to give this up. It's part of our social life. It's part of our family life, perhaps. Work, you know. So when the precepts go a little bit against the grain... Um, that's a time to really, really, really consider them, you know, and what really matters. And uh, I was talking to someone today who was saying, you know, actually f finally, you know, giving up alcohol and going into social functions and talking to people about it, um, saying, actually, I don't drink because I want to be more mindful, had a very good response. I said, like, oh, well, that's good. Can I have a cranberry juice as well? <laughs> you know, we can actually, we can actually, if we, if we ourselves feel comfortable about what we're doing, then it tends to uh, have a good, you know, make, have a good, make a good impression on other people. If we feel awkward about it, then that awkwardness will also transmit. So anyway, this is all for reflection, but I would really encourage, you know, to, to move in that direction. So because this is the first part of the training. It's only the beginning. So if we want to really help ourselves to be more mindful, to develop on the path, then, yeah, we, we want to take the first steps. So this is the foundation of the practice. To have the result of keeping the precepts, of course, is a more clear, it's a more comfortable, it's a more happy mind. We don't have much to feel agitated around, confused around. There's a feeling of, uh, well, feeling good about ourselves and the way we live. So first the precepts. And then he said, you know, the next part is moderation. Moderation in, in eating. Moderation in sleeping. And moderation in, in sense input. So these are good things to consider. Gradual training, gradually trying to balance our needs, our physical needs, um, in such a way that we're we're not overindulging. We're not we're not 
also leaving ourselves short perhaps in some cases, but to get the right balance, to get the right measure of food and, and sleep, the, the things that nourish the body, taking care of the body, you could say. And then the, 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 the right, or the, I say, uh, the correct measure of input, which, which the emphasis, this part of the training is to reduce, it's to, it's to lessen the sensory input. So what can that mean for us? You know, for, for, for retreat situations, it, you know, keeping the eight precepts, clearly we're renouncing any kind of entertainment. And uh, <clears throat> so that is a significant, for most of us, a significant lessening of input. We're not taking in so much news, we're not taking in books, fiction, TV, movies and so forth. There's nothing wrong with these things, but it's like they're other people's stories. It's like they're other people's mental <laughs> contents. So when we're dealing with other people's mental contents, we can't really deal with our own. It's more like we're just taking it in, you know, taking in anything that's from, from another mind is going to obscure what's happening here. It's going to distract us. It's okay, but it's just like... um more of, more of. If we want to uh, purify the heart, we have to, first of all, pay attention to it. And so it's, it's just something to consider, you know, and, and people often say, oh, I haven't got time to meditate. But then you ask, you know, well, how much TV do you watch? <laughs> that horrible question, you know, because it, it, it's not to feel bad about it, really. It's not that we should feel bad about it. But it's just what's more important, you know, what do you want to spend your time doing? And entertainment is enticing, it's relaxing, it's, you know. But actually, the more we practice meditation, the more we get to realize this is really relaxing. You know, someone said to me today, they go on a holiday to, to chill out, you know, relax, enjoy. It's so stressful, <laughs> you know, <laughs> having to book, having to plan having to, you know, have fun relentlessly. <laughs> it can actually be quite tiring, can't it? You know, looking for pleasure, seeking the best, best holiday, how to enjoy a holiday. It's really quite painful, actually. I can remember this, going on holiday, and, and it's never quite as wonderful as, as you'd hope. And inevitably, there's some stresses and strains. You come home, you feel just as tired, you need another holiday, and you've got a big bill to pay. It's been like, mm -hmm. is this is this quite it? And this person was saying, but actually, coming on a retreat, coming to a coming to a monastery, coming to serve, you know, you might be working quite hard actually, but it doesn't cost anything. That's good. But more importantly, we can really relax because we're practicing meditation, mindfulness. This is the real holiday, isn't it? A holiday for the heart. So just to remember that, and we, in a way, I think we learn through our own experience, and that's the truth. So in a way, there's nothing to be said, you know, because we'll, we'll discover it for ourselves, and then it's, it's a no-brainer, you know, when you realize, isn't it, we feel ourselves the benefits of the practice, then we're going to want to do it more. And in fact, that's the only way we're going to want to do it more, is if we notice the benefit. 
because we're, we're programmed to seek happiness, you know. And because of ignorance, people can seek happiness in all different ways and be disappointed again and again and again and again and again and again, you know. But if we, if we can start to clear the ignorance away, if we can start to see more clearly, then we can notice what really <coughs> makes us happy and we'll incline towards that. And it's the peace, it's the well-being that comes from being aware of what's really happening, isn't it? Moment by moment, being, being alive, being here. That's what really gives us happiness. And so we're going, to, we're going to incline towards practice more and more the more we appreciate the benefits. But sometimes we can forget these things when we're out there in the world and things get very busy and full and active and we, we might be starting to get a bit stressed and think, well, I haven't got time to, to sit. And it's the very time we most need to remember, you know, remember, keep coming back to this. Somebody said, you know, I often say to people, we should, we should really ideally sit for a couple of hours a day. It's because I'm a Goenka trained person, you know, that's what he says. He said, he still says in videos and talks, two hours a day minimum. <laughs> but, you know, people are saying to me, you shouldn't say that to people because it's not doable for most people. It just makes you feel like a failure if you can't do that. And I really take that on board because we don't want to feel like failures and we don't want to feel like we have to meditate. And if we don't, we're losers, you know. That doesn't generate well-being, does it? But we can start uh, with just a few minutes, 10 minutes. 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening. Wonderful. And if that, you know, like I was saying before, to, to take on new habits is not easy, like the horse, like the gradual training. We need to perhaps gradually introduce our practice, introduce it, try it, give it a bit of time and see. And if it works well, then we give it a bit more time and a bit more and a bit more. And perhaps that is a more realistic approach. So please consider that. If you sit for 10 minutes, then start with that when you go back home. And, and it's really helpful, I think, after a retreat, there's a certain momentum towards liberation. There's a certain momentum towards mindfulness. And we don't want to lose that momentum, do we? We want to keep it, keep it, sustain it. So not to forget all about the meditation as soon as we get home. Well, that's, a, that's just a real shame. So to keep the momentum, but then to see if we can develop it develop it. Someone asked me about how can meditation be enjoyable? And, I, and I, I think that's a really key question because meditation needs to be enjoyable in order for us to do it. So find the ways, you know, have a nice place where you sit. It, it doesn't need to be a very big space, just a particular space and make it nice, you know. Well, if you're a greed type, you'll want to do that. If you're an aversion type, never mind, just wherever. <laughs> but but have a place and and you know make it good and and be kind to yourselves when we're practicing. If it's difficult, bring up the loving kindness 
we can do that. We, it's always there for us. We just need to bring it to mind. Wish yourself well. You know, if there's anything that's happened in the day that's troublesome, of course it will come into the mind when we meditate. That's wonderful. Gives us a chance to process. Naturally, we'll process anything that needs to be attended to. And that's a relief in itself. But if there's a, a, an overwhelm, a feeling of uh, painful, difficult, bring in the metta practice. Remember compassion. But above all, be willing to, to keep making time. Keep making time for practice. Remember. This word sati means remember. We need to remember uh, the benefits and sustain our practice throughout our lives. And we, we will do it. We'll do it because we know the benefit. I trust that. And uh, <clears throat> remember also, you know, it's, it's helpful for people in the Mahayana tradition they have the bodhisattva vows. They have a sense of, we're not just doing this for ourselves. And it's true, we're not just doing this for ourselves, really. When we, when we help ourselves, we're helping everybody. Someone was talking today about, about meditating on the, on the tube, on the train. What a wonderful thing to do. You know, we don't have to sit in lotus posture with our eyes mm -hmm. closed like this. You know, that people would think that was a bit much. Perhaps it would be a bit disturbing for people. They think we're a bit disturbed. <laughs> but just to sit, you know, just just to sit and do nothing on the train, isn't it? You notice most people they're on they're doing something, and it's mostly taking in the sense input. You know, and we we don't have to do that, and we can sit and we can practice metta on the train, or we can simply be mindful. What a gift. What a gift to everybody else. People feel it. They feel it when someone's present. It enables everybody else to be a little bit more present, to be a little bit more here. It really does. It really does. So we can, we can think of our meditation as, a, as an offering. We can think of the people that we love. If we're feeling a bit demotivated, we don't really, can't really be bothered. Just remember, you can share the merit of your practice with other people. Think of the people that you love. Think of people who need uh, support. Think of people who are struggling. And, and dedicate your practice to them. Instant energy. Because we're generous beings. We want to be good to each other. We want to help each other. And I, I truly believe that our, our meditation is the biggest help we can offer actually, because it's making peace here. Where does peace start? It has to start here. And from here it can manifest, you know. And so, so consider this. Consider our meditation as a great act of generosity. The Buddha said, one mindful breath, one mindful breath is worth more than all your wealth. You can give all your wealth away and it's not worth as much as one mindful breath. And that's something to remember, you know, if you've got five minutes to practice. It's a great act of generosity. And so we can, we can be aware of that, we can make much of that, and we can dedicate it to this one and that one for world peace, for stuff we read about in the papers, terrible things happening over there. Let's, let's dedicate our practice for them.
for those people. You see, so this is a this is a real motivator. I use this a lot. I use it all the time. And it really helps. It really makes a sense of connection. And we are, of course, you know, all connected. And a sense of, of offering something. And sometimes we, we have difficulty giving to ourselves, wanting to help ourselves and serve ourselves. Well, okay, if that's difficult, then dedicate our practice for someone else. Our parents, you know, anyone, everyone, all beings, whatever works for you. So these are just some reflections on what happens next. And I hope they can be useful and encouraging. Thank you for listening.